0: Welcome to Bioethics in the Margins. We are a group of bioethicists from different institutions across the country. This podcast represents our views and those of our guests, but we do not speak for our universities or medical centers, nor for any formalized bioethics organizations. Our mission is to bring marginalized topics and voices into the bioethics discourse. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Amelia Barwise, Associate Professor of Medicine and Assistant Professor of Biomedical Ethics at the Mayo Clinic, and Dr. Kirk Johnson, Assistant Professor of Justice Studies and Medical Humanities at Montclair State University. Please enjoy this conversation.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Bioethics in the Margins. Uh, we're so excited to have uh, Dr. Nathaniel P. Morse, um, MD, here with us today. And just a little uh, bio about Dr. Morse. Uh, he received his medical degree from Harvard Medical School and completed psychiatry residency at Stanford. Where he served as chief resident in psychiatry. After residency, Dr. Morris completed a fellowship in forensic psychiatry at USSF, UCSF, excuse me. He is currently an assistant professor of clinical psychiatry at UCSF and provides care to incarcerated patients in the San Francisco jail system. He has published numerous journal articles on mental health care in jails and prisons, the criminalization of people both with mental illness and addiction and other topics in psychiatry and the law and again we give a big bioethics in the margins welcome to Dr. Moore. so thank you so much for being with us today hi thanks so much for having me oh my the pleasure is all ours and we're excited to pick your brain a little bit uh this is such a really important topic and because inmates um and individuals that are in prisons are in the dark You usually don't think about it until, um, of course, you unfortunately have a friend or family member that isn't, um, you know, incarcerated. And of course, you're always um, uh, attuned and aware of their well-being. So uh, my uh, first question is, um, how did you get into uh, this field of um, psychiatry? And and what was the journey like uh, that got you to this point?
2: Sure. Um, so, when I was in medical school, you know, many medical students will go through the experience of different rotations, you know, surgery, biology and you kind of over time start recognizing what is the field or the specialty that draws you the most. And for me, that was mental health care and psychiatry, um, you know, really uh, patients, you know, stories about their experiences, the unique experience of mental illness, how that affected people's lives is something that really stayed with me and kind of drew me to the field um when it comes to um you know the criminal legal system and incarceration in particular um exactly as you mentioned um you know in many ways incarceration and criminal legal involvement affect people's lives in really traumatic and devastating ways and so it affects their lives every single day but in many other ways particularly in a professional world such as like medical school it's not something we often think or talk about um in academia and um you know when i went through medical school you know we had courses on social determinants of health and things like that. But for the most part, to my recollection, we didn't really talk much about jails and prisons. We didn't talk about how these affected people's lives Um, until I got to uh, fourth year of medical school. I signed up for uh, an elective rotation in forensic psychiatry and I I had actually um, thought it was going to be more like in the courtroom, kind of like you can't handle the truth, (laughs) you know, expert witnesses and things like that. Uh, But I ended up working on an inpatient uh, jail unit at uh, Bellevue Hospital in New York City where people who were experiencing mental illness who were so ill that they either couldn't be managed at Rikers Island because they were so sick or the NYPD had brought them to Bellevue for whatever reason um, were treated, um, and that was a really eye-opening and kind of life-altering experience for me, seeing um, what I now often sometimes refer to as kind of the front lines of mental health care, of just ha- the degree of illness that people were experiencing um, alongside incarceration, and that, um, to me, was kind of an early indicator that this is something I was really um, struck by and something I was very interested in, and that's kind of uh, what led me down to to where I am today.
1: Awesome. Thank you. and. um Yeah, and it's really interesting because, as you mentioned before, you really don't think about, um, you know, inmates' health care and uh, their health and well-being, not just physically, but also uh, mentally and psychologically. And uh, my first question before um, my uh, friend and colleague Amelia um, asked you a couple more uh, very pertinent questions uh, about your field and about what you do is, uh, do inmates actually have health care? And if yes, do inmates pay uh, a co like we usually pay a co-pay um, to receive care?
2: So uh, as most things in medicine, it's kind of, it, it depends, right? So uh, of yeah. course, uh, people who are incarcerated um, need to have access to health care. Um, they actually have rights to health care. Um, there's a kind of famous uh, court case, Estelle v. Gamble, basically determining that um, Deliberated indifference to serious medical needs um, can uh, represent a violation of the Eighth Amendment, cruel and unusual punishment. And kind of there are various court cases coming off of that. Um, and so essentially, yes, people who are incarcerated, who are deprived of liberty, who are confined against their will have nowhere else to go for their medical care except for the jail or prison where they are. Right. And so they they have to be provided with health care in those environments, um, even though. Um, that's the reality where they need to be cared for. There's then um, the other reality, which is, well, what are they actually getting? Right. And so what is the quality of care? What is the what does that look like, even if they're theoretically are constitutional rights or um, requirements that people be provided with care? How, how much does that look like? Right. Um, and so that can vary depending on. You know, uh, just to step back for a moment, jails and prisons are very, very different environments. Um, uh, This is something, again, I was never really aware of in medical school or taught much. And the jails are typically where people who have been arrested often uh, pre-trial, so like they haven't been convicted of anything yet, Um, they're waiting for their criminal proceedings to play out. Um, Sometimes if someone's convicted of kind of lesser offenses that are like a year or less, they might say, okay, just finish it up in the jail. Um, But prison is typically when someone has been convicted and sentenced um, for more serious charges, like a year or longer. And so they're very, very different environments. Um, Jails uh, have rapid turnover. So people coming in and out and in and out Um, whereas prisons are typically more stable populations, people who are there for years at a time. And so, as you can imagine, the reason why I'm bringing that up is you have very, very different health needs, depending on who's in that environment. In a jail where people are coming in and out, you know, off the streets, if they've just been arrested, you have lots of people who are coming down off of substances. You need to figure out what are their medications they're normally on. If they're leaving soon, where are they going to go get their follow-up care? Prisons, imagine if someone's there for years or decades or a life sentence, right? That is a very different healthcare environment in terms of providing someone with long-term care. Um, so those are just some considerations to think about as well. Um, I believe you also asked about copays, pays um, And yes, uh, that is a real challenge that um, many jail, jails and prisons uh, across the country charge co-pays for people to access healthcare. Some of the reasoning for that that's been provided is policymakers will say, well, you know, Kind of along the you do the crime you do the time type mentality. If you know we're going to be funding these services, the people who are receiving them need to pay for, to some degree. Um, but from a budget standpoint, it might make sense to propose something like that. But from a practical or even just a compassionate, you know, humanity standpoint, if you are you know living on the streets, you have no place to stay, you have no money, you're experiencing mental illness or addiction, you're incarcerated. Um, And even if a copay is $2 to access a doctor in a jail or prison, what's the likelihood you're going to spend money on that $2 for that visit versus if you need to spend that money to talk to your family on the phone? Or if you need to buy food off of commissary for yourself because the meals aren't big enough, or you need to get your plug so you can sleep at night, right? Um, so even if these copays are tiny, um, you know, a dollar, a couple dollars, ten dollars, um, what may seem very small to many of us, um, for people who are often, you know, just in such deep poverty, which in my experience are so many people behind bars, are people who are there because they are poor. Um, that can be a really devastating effect on people and their ability to access um, care. So we're now seeing more of a movement. Uh, fortunately in my opinion we're removing these types of copays and barriers for people accessing care uh, behind bars
3: so i know my understanding is it's very challenging for most um, incarcerated populations to access health care generally mental and physical um, so i know you've written about tele-mental health services to improve access to mental health services for incarcerated populations so can you speak a little bit to that and how that might address some of the, sh- the shortages
2: Sure. And so I I think um, there's absolutely, yes, absolutely. If you are incarcerated, it can often be challenging to access the kind of care that you need. Right. So, um, different jails and prisons have different what are called medication or drug formularies. So depending on what jail or prison you end up at, they might not have the medication that, even if you've been on this medication for five or 10 years, they might not have that. Um, they may be shortages of providers. Um, it may be challenging to get you know staff's attention to be seen. Um, there are all of these challenges that are faced behind bars where incarcerated people, um, you know, in many different settings, jails, prisons may not be able to access the care that they need, and that is a huge uh, problem. Um, On the other hand, to play devil's advocate uh, here, um, this is a huge problem, not just in jails and prisons for mental health services and other health care, but across the country in the communities as well, right? And so, um, you know, the last statistics I've read is that the majority of US counties in the United States do not have a single psychiatrist. And not to just be psychiatry focused, right? Of course, I want to talk about all mental health professionals, all clinicians, but that's just one example of shortages across the country, right? And so, um, you know, when I'm teaching medical students or residents, We'll talk about how you know people who will come into jails or prisons, right? If they you know aren't seen by a psychiatrist or a prescriber or somebody within, let's say, a week, two weeks, you know, something like that, you might be quite upset, understandably, if that were you, right? I would be upset if I were arrested and I you know didn't have access to somebody to talk about whether I should start medication or not for weeks. At the same time, if you're in the community and you call academic medical centers or clinics or places to get mental health services, right? They might tell you, we have a six-month waiting list, you know, sorry, come back another time. Or we have a four-month waiting list, sorry, come back another time, right? Um, And so it's a really real problem, both behind bars and in the community. And I think that's something that's really important. Um, I think behind bars, the problem is obviously magnified because people don't have choice for where to go, right? And they're trapped there. Um, Whereas in the community, you can, you know, try to pursue different options, Um, but I think that's an important background where there's, of course, there's massive shortages behind bars of people who can provide these services, but those shortages exist in the community as well, which is really um, important for us to think about. Uh, To your second part about uh, telehealth services, Um, so just like, similarly, in the community, telehealth is something that's growing and being used more often in jails and prisons in the United States and elsewhere. Um, and I, I, similarly, I think there's pros and cons. Um, pros would be potentially attracting more health professionals or clinicians who otherwise wouldn't want to work in these settings. Um, there's often a perception, um, whether it's accurate or not, about safety concerns, people not wanting to work in jails and prisons. And so if instead you can be at home uh, on Zoom, you know, on your laptop, taking care of patients, I have plenty of colleagues I've talked to who say that they find the work seems fascinating working with people in the criminal legal system, but they don't want to work behind bars. So that might be an entryway for people to work in these settings right so that could potentially help with shortages um, particularly in like rural very you know um far away environments where people might not want to live to provide care to certain you know to patients if a prison is located in a very rural faraway place that they can't access um so those are some potential pros but then there's also potential cons right so um one is you know outpatient level care a lot of the you know studies or papers seem to suggest it's fairly equivalent but, but what about inpatient right um, jails or prisons might have inpatient level care so somebody who needs hospital level care because they're quite acute and quite ill is having a tablet or somebody on zoom the equivalent level of care is having an in-person clinician right that's a, a challenging question um, to think about there's also other questions where if you are incarcerated in handcuffs facing charges and you see someone on a screen that you have never met before and you don't know if this is being recorded you don't know you know obviously the clinician should hopefully walk you through that there is that sense of trust in, you know how does that work right in a jail or prison environment where you are on a screen with somebody who's telling you that they're your doctor and that they're supposed to take care of you but you've never met this person um so i think that's another thing that we need to have more research into is what are the effects of telehealth uh, in these environments for people um and so I think you I can talk for quite a while about some of those pros and cons. But again, I think the pros is potentially expanding access to care for these systems and helping connect people with clinicians much more quickly. But the cons are what are some of the logistics and the realities of
3: it. Yeah, those are great points. So I know another part of your work, you've been looking at decarceration um and how that accelerated sort of over COVID, it was sort of beginning to happen um due to the large prison populations, but COVID sort of forced um this process to maybe accelerate a bit more. So, can you explain what decarceration is, um, and you know how it links to COVID, um, and sort of some of the implications for your work?
2: Sure. Um, so, when we talk about incarceration, right, which is you know putting people in jails and prisons, and that's kind of been you know the American experiment over the last few decades, right? Is what, is frequently called mass incarceration, right? Which is these huge increase in incarceration rates across the country. Decarceration would essentially be the opposite of that, right? Which is taking people out of jails and prisons or uh, preventing them from ending up there in the first place. And there's been this um, movement over the last few years or decades, really, to kind of start unwinding mass incarceration. Where not only the people affected by you know these policies, families, communities, but also policymakers, you know, people are starting to realize, wow, this is really traumatic and not working, right? And this is it's expensive, it disrupts people's lives, it has public health implications. Um, so for the last few decades, there have been uh, last few you know years or decades uh, attempts to start unwinding these policies, rethinking sentencing guidelines you know coming up with problem solving or collaborative courts how you know uh, how do we avoid people ending up in jails and prisons and i think covid um when the pandemic arrived really uh, shined a light on this because people really saw wow when you have overcrowded jails and prisons these are There's one quote in a New York Times article I saw, which was like a petri dish, right? These are literally disease-producing factories where people are getting sick and dying, and so that really drew attention to the need for decarceration and as a public health, you know, priority, um, you know, decreasing the crowding of these facilities and getting keeping people out of jails and prisons whenever possible. So, you know, preliminary data from the last couple years suggested that jail and prison populations really did start to decline with COVID. Uh, They've been declining um, over the last few years or for the last 10 or 20 years, kind of slowly um, coming down from their peak from the early 2000s, but it really rapidly declined with the start of COVID. And I think the challenge is since COVID, you know, as the pandemic has kind of progressed and people have kind of started going back to their regular lives, um, you know, data starting to show that some of those populations are already rebounding right to back to where they were. And I think that really shows the, the durability and You know, the long term implications of some of the criminal legal policies that we have across this country, where it's really hard to just suddenly, you know, open the gates and let people out. Right. It's hard to suddenly stop charging people when there are laws on the books for what is legal and what is not. Um, So I think at the end of the day, COVID really is an important milestone for drawing attention and really shining a light for the public to see of the health implications of keeping people incarcerated. And, you know, hopefully that's inspiring much longer term discussions about decarceration and you know we could talk um, endlessly about and you know how do we keep people healthy behind bars access to care telehealth um, we talked about getting rid of co-pays you know all of these different ways but at the end of the day if you have someone in a cage right how do you keep someone healthy in a cage is a challenging question and instead do we think about well why does this person need to be in a cage right um, that is kind of the more profound um, basic question that really prevents a lot of that upstream um, Uh, complications that we see in terms of mass incarceration so to me that's the the real uh, important discussion is um, if somebody is behind bars why and do they need to be there because i think you know we're all recognizing that incarceration can be so traumatic and devastating for people's lives um, not only their livelihoods their communities but also their health
3: but it has also raised some other questions such as with you know monitoring people and that type of thing and that's i mean my understanding is that's also become a whole um area of potential exploitation um because now there's this interest in how do we sort of monitor people that we potentially let out
2: yeah so so that's a a really important point you bring up and something particularly when i was in training um i started seeing it when i was a resident um but then particularly as a fellow working alongside what are called problem solving or collaborative courts um and so Uh, these are courts that have emerged over the last couple of decades where kind of in the name problem solving, right, is solving the problems that lead to people ending up behind bars, right? And so you see these courts that have emerged focusing on, you know, drug courts, mental health courts, homelessness, you know, all veterans courts um, to really try to meet the underlying needs of why people keep ending up, um, you know, uh, arrested or incarcerated. Um, And in many ways, These are very well-intentioned and, you know, can in many ways change people's lives uh, in many situations for the better, right? Getting people out behind bars, getting them connected with treatment, that's great. But as you mentioned, well, what are some of the costs that are kind of hidden coming up here, right? And so even though we don't want people behind bars, right, incarcerated, on the other hand, if you're still arresting people and then, you know, putting an ankle monitor on them for the next two years, you know, walking around the community with an ankle monitor and charging that, that's a really um devastating experience and whether it's two years or a month or whatever the timeline is that that can really affect people's lives not only from like a stigma standpoint but even i mean i've had patients tell me just from a practical standpoint needing to get to a charger right if you're living on the sidewalk and you have an ankle monitor where do you charge that right if you're homeless and you don't have a place to go um so i think you you raise an excellent point that thinking about you know decarceration in my view is not just you know, open the doors and let people, you know, th- there's obviously a spectrum here, um, you know, of rethinking public policies, of rethinking public safety. How do we, um, you know, invest in our communities, whether it's uh, investing in housing, whether it's in supportive services, mental health services, um, but you're right. And there are, you know, people have raised concerns about, for instance, these types of collaborative courts, um, to what degree are they, you um, there's something called the net widening phenomenon, where are they leading to more people ending up in the criminal legal system? Because rather than viewing, OK, they're ending up behind bars, that's dramatic or bad for them. They're saying, well, here's a, a noble you know, court that they're ending up in. That, that could be great. Look at that. And so are more people getting arrested because whether it's police, district attorneys, whoever might believe um, that that's the only way to get them connected with treatment. Right. So there are definite pros and cons that we have to think about with these decarceration strategies um and at the end of the day that's in my opinion a reason why i believe the medical community really has a responsibility to join this discussion and to be a, to lean into it and to be a part of it to talk about what would public health approaches look like um because i think if um you know doctors nurses uh, you know other health professionals if we're not talking um, if we're not joining this debate and providing, you know, our input in terms of the needs of patients and you know public health strategies, um, I think we're we're missing out because we really have an opportunity at this time, whether it's with COVID or unwinding mass incarceration, to kind of shape public debate um, in, in that way. And so that that's something I find is very important that I
1: think the medical community really needs to start leaning into. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and of course, we know the societal and social implications. It's not just, um, as you said, Dr. Morse. Um, okay, everybody free. Well, they're going to go out into society and world that, as you know, it's hard for them to get jobs still because of that that background. Um, we uh, recently had a podcast uh, talking about the legalization of marijuana and how um, the medicinal but also recreational use of marijuana is totally uh, gaining national, um, of course, uh, acclaim because, of course, of so the tax revenue that it brings. But yet some states still refuse to expunge the records of those individuals who they incarcerated in the first place having marijuana possession right and these individuals um still have a hard time finding jobs still are in prison um so and of course if you can't work it has a lot of other particular uh consequences uh that uh, as you know that you can't support yourself you can't uh, get food you can't get the basic necessities of life um so yeah I, I, that was um really great point um well taken within um the the social dynamics within individuals when they actually are released and the different obstacles that they endure on a day to day basis uh, I also am curious in regards to health care in, sh- um, in, in contracts basically for uh inmates um, so what are prison health care contracts to your um, experience and understanding. And um, are they improving the health care of inmates or is it just basically something that's there um, uh, for them to use? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just curious about that.
2: And sorry, you're talking about contracts of like who's providing the health services in those environments or? Correct.
1: Is it limited to um, just uh, med- regular um, primary care physicians? Um, what is it like uh, for you if you go in? Is it a different, I won't say compensation, but is it a different type of level of coverage or care? Like what are the dynamics um, to your understanding of healthcare contracts? And you could narrow it down to um, behavioral health or, you know, psychological uh, services. Sure. So,
2: um, you know, there there are many different ways in which uh, healthcare services are provided in jails and prisons. Um, You know, one way is just for a locality or state or federal government is they just provide the services by their own agency, right? So you could have um, a Department of Health or, you know, the, um, you know, let's say the California prison system or wherever that where they're saying, okay, we are providing these services as a state agency. Um, Many states, you know, or cities or counties take that approach, right? We are providing the service as a, you know, government agency. Other places for either Policymakers pursuing efficiency or cost savings or whatever will um, refer out those services where they're provided through um, private contractors. So instead, they'll say, okay, I'm just going to make up, um, you know, X city. X city has their jails or they have a prison there. And they say, well, we don't have enough people or government or whoever to, you know, provide healthcare services here. So we're going to hire. Company A, and Company A, they're going to take care of everything. They provide the doctors, they provide the nurses, they do the medications, the pharmacy, the electronic medical records. So that's a different model. And then there's many models in between, right? There's academic um, partnerships where you see jails and prisons that team up with academic medical centers. Um, And so there's a variety of ways in which these services are provided uh, behind bars, all of which have their own pros and cons. Um, To your question, what is the range of services available? Um, as with most things in medicine, it depends. Right. So, um, you know, I, I've worked in environments where, you know, you, you might, if you go to a prison, there might be a prison that has its own emergency department. They have their own hospital. They have their own x-rays and imaging. They have their lab services. I mean, you may have, um, a huge range of services that are available on site within that place. Right. You might have other places where um, there's really not much provided, there's not many doctors, prescribers who are available. Um, Maybe it's kind of a bare bones nursing staff. Um, Maybe the correctional facility is located in a very rural place where it's hard to hire people. Um, So a lot of it depends on what type of correctional facility is it? Is it a jail? Is it a prison? Um, A lot of it also depends on the location, the funding, the type of healthcare service contracts, as you mentioned. Many places will often provide kind of as at a minimum, right, is like primary care services where people are going for their basic blood pressure, you know, acid reflux, you know, cholesterol, you know, that, you know, if they're having chest pain, those kind of workups. And then they'll also have often mental health services either through primary care or alongside that. And that would be um, ideally you'd have, you know, um, psychologists or social workers or therapists or psychiatrists. Um, but a lot of that, again, as I mentioned, really depends um, on the facility. In some places, you may just have a primary care clinician who's doing all of that. In other places, you may have various subspecialties who are providing those services.
1: I'm also um, interested in uh, a particular session, right? It, uh, so, if there is it similar to an individual who is going through behavioral um, services where you check in um, you sit down or they might, you know, usually the stereotypical, um, Hollywood version is that there's a couch and somebody lays yeah. down right. and shares all of their, um, you know, uh, issues with life. And um, what, are, what is the aesthetics, um, uh, right. what, or what, what, uh, does a session with you, um, look and feel like, um, in your, in your, um, experience, uh, dealing with and and assisting inmates. sure yeah so
2: um yeah i don't want to be a broken record here and just say it it depends (laughs) again but but as you might imagine right um if you're providing care on as you mentioned right there let's just say it's the basic quote outpatient level care somebody let's say they get referred in a jail or a prison for depression or anxiety they want to talk with a psychiatrist learn about coping strategies or maybe they take medications or something um yeah it might not be you know sitting with freud in front of a you know plush bookshelf for the fireplace but um often much which usually isn't the case in the community either um, but uh often yeah in that setting what we often refer to as like outpatient level care whether it's in a jail or a prison it'll typically be like you know going to someone you know either sitting in an office um sitting and ch- chatting you know checking in with the person how, how's everything going you know Typically, it's just like in the community, right? And, you know, obviously you sometimes might talk about the person's legal situation, particularly, um, you know, if the person's in prison for years or decades, it might not be as relevant sometimes. But if, for instance, in, in jail, when are you getting out of here? Do you have any sense of when you, how long you might be here is a you know, very important question, because if somebody is leaving tomorrow, that's very, very different than if they say, well, I'm going to be here for a year, right? Um, so those are factors at the outpatient level then you have to think there's often like emergency or like crisis level care. And so that's if somebody is reporting they're suicidal, if they're suddenly hallucinating in a new way that staff are concerned about, if they can't take care of themselves. Um, That's something that often is quite worrisome is, you know, um, people who are so ill that even in a jail or a prison where they're provided food, clothing, shelter, if they still can't even manage that. Um, And so in some ways in jails and prisons, um, people earlier in our talk today, we've you you know we all talked about it can be really challenging to access care. But in other ways, um, people often will draw attention to themselves in jails and prisons if they're quite sick. Um, so whereas if you're in a city or you know in a community, you might be wandering in the city or living in a tent, and you know people are walking past you as they go about their day, and nobody really says anything. It might kind of go under the radar for weeks, months, or years. But if you're in a jail or a prison and you aren't eating your food or you're not showering. Or, you know, your toilet is overflowing. um, Oftentimes, a cellmate or a uh, corrections officer or somebody will draw attention to health staff like, hey, something's up, you know, this person's not doing so hot, right? This person really needs help. Um, And that's a, a way in which people might draw attention in terms of getting care. So that's kind of outpatient. We talk about emergency level care. And there's also inpatient, right? If somebody is so sick that they need to be hospitalized, right? And that's, you know, meeting with folks to really acutely stabilize them, right? Getting them on the right medications, going through suicide safety planning, you know, figuring out ways to keep them well outside the hospital. Um, And so there's kind of, you know, a range of different ways in which you might have your encounters with patients. And and some of that really is just so dependent on how long they'll be there and what their legal situation is like. Um, As a trainee, I I had worked on death row, right, Um, and that's a very, very different environment taking care of someone who's literally in a cage in front of you who is potentially facing the death penalty uh, to be executed by the state, right? That's a very different conversation than somebody who just came in 12 hours ago who was arrested, let's say, for vandalism, and they might be out in a couple hours, right? Those are just worlds apart in terms of how you're interacting with that patient. In my view, there are similarities in that in either way, you have a human being in front of you who need help and that your job is to connect with them as best you can and support them. But the life circumstances that they're in, the treatment options available to you, what you might do next are just completely different depending on those uh, um, external kind of context factors. So I don't know if that makes sense, or
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, thank you. So uh, again, it's, it, as you said, it depends and there's many different um, facets that take take form in in how you treat an intimate. Um, uh, My other question is regarding uh, postpartum depression um, for um, those instances where, of course, the woman is female and uh, she recently had a child um, in prison. And um, what is your experience with that? Um, are, Are there... Uh, particular services involved uh, for that, because I know that's a unique situation. Not only, of course, you're in prison, but you were pregnant and you had to deal with um, you being incarcerated while pregnant. But then on top of that, of course, giving birth. And um, in many cases, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, for a certain amount of time, the mother is allowed to be with the child. I know it's a limited period of time, but then after that, the child is separated from Uh, the parent, maybe go into adoption, if not a family, friend or family member. Um, How, like, do you have any experiences uh, dealing with um, inmates uh, that uh, went through that? And um, what is the process in in trying to uh, provide support to that uh, individual?
2: Sure. Um, You know, I obviously can't talk about specific individual patients, but in general, you know, obviously, yes, as you mentioned, I, I think people who are pregnant or who have recently had children, I mean, the experience of car- incarceration, it just magnifies that kind of trauma um to another level, right? Of not only I think it shines a light on the ways in which being behind bars separates families and communities, um, but when someone has just delivered a baby or, you know, just had a baby or is pregnant and expecting, um, it really um hits home and shines a light on that separation, right? Um and so at least in my experience in different you know jail and prison environments when that happens um the health teams are usually quite focused and worried about making sure that we're tracking that person very closely and supporting them as best we can but i think you you're you know you're spot on about broader policies and how we think about separation how we think about families keeping them together and so that's something that over time for me has really shaped my view of mental health behind bars and you know the criminal legal system is you know, early in my training, I, I was often very focused on evidence-based care, medications, lab workup, things like which again, I, I still am. But to your point, you know, you can provide the best evidence-based care on the planet. Um, but when someone has had a baby taken away from them, right, um, there is a limit of how much you can support that person, right, in that setting, right? And so, you know, to me, mental health services behind bars is really more than just medications, you know, coping strategies, you know, therapy, check-ins, things like that, but it's really the environment that people are in. And so to your point, right, if I would rather pick, you know, having access to the latest medication, you know, new um you know, infusions or whatever for postpartum depression, or would it be having policies that allow new mothers to be reunited with their child right and have more time for whether it's breastfeeding or to be able to see their baby? you know i I would you know odds are probably lean towards the latter right because that is probably going to have a significantly greater effect on that person's mental health, and so these environmental factors right um small you know not small, but um how do i rather than small, I'd say things that we don't think about as medical interventions in my view. Um, have significant mental health and broader medical effects. So an example would be, rather than, you know, in uh, California and other places, there's movements to stop charging people for phone calls to their families, right? That is a profound intervention to me that has significant mental health effects, right? If someone is able to talk to their family on the phone and not get charged for it, right? Um, Or to your point about families and, um, you know, uh, babies is uh, New York and other places, there have been movements to... um, allow people who are incarcerated to be incarcerated in facilities that are closer to their families, right? So that they can visit them and see them in person. Right. Um, so I, so I really appreciate your point bringing up, um, you know, these types of cases, because you see literally firsthand what it's like for families to be separated. Um, And so in my view, obviously, access to evidence-based mental health services is very, very important. But those broader environmental social determinant factors of are you close to your family? Can you talk to them? Can you see them? um, Are are so, so uh, vital and really, ultimately, in my view, probably have the biggest determinant on people's outcomes.
3: Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. Um, I know you've written as well about dual loyalty and the effect that sort of managing patients, either whether they be decarcerated or incarcerated, on sort of your clinician-patient relationship. So can you um, elaborate on that a little bit?
2: Sure. Um, Dual loyalty is this concept where in certain treatment environments or roles where you'll basically you're being pulled between loyalties to different parties, Right. An example that I, I've used before sometimes we'll give is um, how dual loyalty, it's, it's not just we often talk about it a lot in jails and prisons, and I can kind of give some examples, but it, it, it occurs everywhere. And the example I sometimes give in other environments is if you're a doctor in a hospital and you have a patient and you really care about this patient, you want them to get well, you're doing everything you can, but the hospital administration, they are putting a lot of pressure on you to discharge this patient because they're like, we need more beds. We have a lot of people in the emergency department. You got to get this person moving, Right. And this patient's telling you i have nowhere to go right where am i supposed to stay and so here you can see that is an example of dual loyalty you have your loyalty to your patient i want to take care of this person i think they could still benefit being in the hospital but you also have the loyalty to the hospital system right where they're pressuring you and saying you need to get this person out as quickly as possible we have this huge wait list or backlog of people who need to get admitted right um so in, in jails and prisons these types of dual loyalties can arise all the time right where Um, You have, you know, patients who are incarcerated and let's say, you know, one example that some of my colleagues and I often talk about is, so for instance, substance use, right? That in a jail or prison setting is technically by the letter of the law illegal, right? If you're, you know, if someone has mailed you or you've smuggled in or you've somehow gotten access to illegal substances in a jail or prison, um, you could be charged with a crime for that, right? Um, We typically tend to view that as a health matter though, right? It's, It's not usually our job to criminalize patients for what they're doing. Um, and so that is an example of a dual loyalty there, right? Where, well, my job as a, as a doctor is to take care of this person to, person, to work with them about substance use, to talk about the health effects, you know, counseling, motivational interviewing. But on the other hand, if a jail or a prison, let's say on um, the unit or the place where that person is housed, there start being lots of like fentanyl overdoses or something. You can see there's a tension here of, oof, well, I, I'm taking care of the patient and it's not my job to report them and criminalize them. On the other hand, now there's broader implications, Right. Other ways in which dual loyalty will arise, um, you know, that I've written about is, is with problem-solving courts, as an example, where people agree as part of a court agreement. They'll, so they'll go to a treatment program, they'll take medications, they um, get released from jail, or, you know, jail. Um, so while they're, uh, if they participate in this treatment plan, let's say for six months, twelve months, however long, and they graduate and they do everything that they're asked to do, then their charges might get reduced or dismissed, right? well, let's say you're in the clinic and you're taking care of that person and they just stop showing up, right? They don't come to their appointments. They don't return their phone calls. And now the lawyers or the judge or whoever from that court says, Hey doc, like, how's everything going with Mr. Smith? That is a profound dual loyalty, like dilemma right there, because you as a physician have a a loyalty to Mr. Smith to take care of him, to support him, to do everything that you can. Other hand, there's this loyalty to the court system where they are asking you how's everything going with Mr. Smith? And if you don't tell them that he's, you know, not come to any of his appointments and not returned his call, are you like lying to the court system? Um, What if they really need that information because um, for safety reasons or for whatever, right? And so that is another example where it can become really challenging and a real dilemma of what do you do in those situations? Um, And so that's something that as clinicians, I gave the hospital example, we deal with in all sorts of different environments, but it's particularly something we think about in jails and prisons
1: as well.
3: about the opioid use disorder, I know there's been some changes in how um, buprenorphine is prescribed. So is that going to have an impact on prescriptions for patients who are incarcerated?
2: Yeah. So to your point, so buprenorphine is a evidence-based medication for treating opioid use disorder. Um, It's one of the the main three that we use that are FDA approved. The other methadone, the last one, um, long-acting injectable naltrexone. But buprenorphine is a, yeah, life-saving medication, uh, reduces mortality, um, is really, for people who need it, an incredible medicine. Um, And historically, jails and prisons often have not offered um, many, if not most, most of these medications. Um, Often the standard has been people come into jails or prisons and they kind of are detoxed off of substances and kind of abstinence is emphasized, right? Um, The problem with that is that's typically not an evidence-based approach. Um, Studies show that when people leave jails or prisons, they're at um, exceedingly high risk for overdose uh, and other complications from returning to substance use. And so there's been, uh, particularly with the opioid epidemic, a renewed focus on uh, providing better care for people um, with addiction um, in jails and prisons. And the one um, encouraging thing is that you know more jails and prisons across the country are starting to embrace these evidence-based treatments, such as buprenorphine, and providing that uh, to people who are behind bars. And there's literature that having access to that not only might improve linkage to treatment in the community, may even potentially reduce recidivism, people ending up back behind bars. Um, but it really also just to the end of the day. Um, Gets to the, the goal that people behind bars deserve access to the same quality of care that people in the community do right, um, and so there have been quite a few uh, court cases and legal arguments that have emerged over medications for opioid use disorder, such as whether it violates people's rights or discrimination or the ADA and so um, there's yeah increasing use of these types of medications, um, but. You know, again, as, as we talked earlier about decarceration, I, again, even though I find it very encouraging that we ha- are having more access to these evidence-based treatments in jails and prisons, the central question of why are so many people with substance use disorders still ending up behind bars? Why are we criminalizing so many people who have addiction? Um, that would be a much more upstream discussion, in my opinion. Um, you know, it's great. We should be providing buprenorphine, methadone, naltrexone to people who need it behind bars. But ideally, people who need it, we wouldn't be arresting them in the first place. Um, if we're just arresting them for substance use or things like that. And so I think we need to be rethinking criminalization of, uh, of, you know, substance uh, use and addiction um, so that those folks aren't ending up behind bars and they can get the care and the supports that they need in the community.
3: Yeah, absolutely agree. Uh, I mean, having a better safety net, having better access to, you know, treatments for addiction, better access to mental health care would all prevent you know, I imagine a lot of these people ending up um, behind bars, um, but I was just curious specifically whether that would, you know, impact uh, prescriptions in the, in the for, for those populations. Um, would it make it easier for other physicians to prescribe um, because they wouldn't need to go through that extra training and uh, that type of thing? But um, yeah, absolutely. Accept your point. Upstream would be a great way to prevent
2: this. Yeah, I mean, to your point. Um, sorry, I thought you were just saying the availability of those medications in jails and prisons. But yeah, I mean, yes. Yeah, so uh, recent federal legislation, at least in the United States, actually finally got rid of the buprenorphine X waiver, which is which is big news. Um, where essentially any clinician who has a DEA license now can prescribe uh, buprenorphine, um, whereas before it was kind of this onerous training requirement and you know submitting for uh, you know a waiver. Um, so yes, there are encouraging recent policy changes, and I, I imagine we're going to continue to see expanded use of these uh, medications in these environments, which, as as I mentioned, are are you know can be quite life saving for people. Um, on the other hand, yes, I, I do think we need to look more upstream as to you know having you know avoiding you know folks with addiction and uh, similar substance related problems ending up behind bars in the first place if we can.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, just to shift a little bit this is my medical humanities um light bulb uh, going on Um, i know that of course ssris and also psychiatric um drugs are other forms of treatment um that you've used but have you used any i guess medically uh humanist uh basis of treatment like for example art therapy or narrative medicine where inmates get to write a novel or journal or write poetry um or music um, as examples of of treatment, because I know, of course, some individuals need to have those type of uh, drugs. Uh, but to make a more holistic type of um, feel regarding their treatment, um, have you used any of those type of mediums or means to assist um, inmates um, and to really express how they feel in, in ways that they probably couldn't verbally express, rather singing or writing or painting? drawing you know whatever particular means um, they used to express themselves yeah
2: absolutely um so whether in jail or prison environments i've worked in um
1: uh, yeah i absolutely agree
2: with what you're saying where i actually say this with patients all the time um you know medications are quite important and in many cases can be life-saving but they're also just part of the equation right um different people uh have different mental health needs right for some people that might be you know a medication each day and they don't really need much else and that's that's great. Um for other people, they don't need medication and they have other strategies that they use. Right. Um so to your point, similar to what I was mentioning earlier about in my view, how over time, rather than just specific medical treatments being the most important thing is over time the social determinants in that broader environment. Right. And so you know, access to phone calls, visitation with family, um, all of those things to me are huge, um, in terms of their importance. And so, yes, in addition, as you're mentioning programs, but also like self-management things, right? So I talk all the time with patients about, you know, exercise is one of the most profound interventions that we have for depression, anxiety, and other, um, mental health issues. Um, uh, you know, whether people are engaging in art, writing books, um, you know those are all powerful, powerful tools um, that I really, really emphasize with patients, particularly because, as I say, you know all medications you know have side effects, right? and those are things that we think about. Um, and so um, you know I typically my approach is usually a combination of you know if people need medications or you know we talk about whether they need it or not, but in pretty much all situations emphasizing what we often call non pharmacologic strategies as you're as you're mentioning, um, programs you know, in terms of access to you know, groups, um, art therapy, you know, schooling uh, are essential. One of the challenges for jails and prisons across the country in the last few years, as you might imagine, is COVID, right? The pandemic has made it really challenging for volunteers um, to come into these environments, to continue with like large group settings. Fortunately, as the pandemic, you know, is evolving now, um, some of those programs are ramping back up across the country. Um, but yes, absolutely, I, I agree with you. If I would rather have somebody um, going to class all day, studying literature, you know, um, working on art, exercising in yard, all of that, my bet was that person would have a much better mental health outcome than someone who is locked in a cell 23, 24 hours a day um, and taking a pill, right? So um, I think that, um, you know, a holistic approach, um, thinking about what is right for this individual person in front of me, and it's often a conversation, right? With the, hey, what are you interested in? What are your thoughts in terms of treatments? Um, and for many people, talking to their family checking in every once in a while um, with staff, you know, reading books, exercise, that is going to be their mental health treatment, right? For other people, you know, it's going to be medications, lab workup, things like that. And so it's all about finding what's right for the individual. But I I totally um, love your your question because um, all of those options should be available to people. And I think that's the concern is if people are just, um, you know, early in the pandemic, whether in jails or prisons, locked in their cell all day with no ability to get out, with no ability to access those other resources. And really the only option for them is kind of access to a pill or something that I, I think that's a problem because that um, can not only exacerbate people's mental health issues, but also really limit their treatment options as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. art therapy, narrative medicine, um, music therapy, really important regarding uh, the health and well-being of um, individuals. Uh, so so yeah, I was curious about that. So yeah, it looks like there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in um, implementing or re-implementing um, post-COVID or whatever term we are in with COVID now. Um, these are uh, really great uh, initiatives that, that looks at the whole person. Um, I'm also curious, and this is a, a plug to listen to season one of our podcast, when um, Arjun talked about a excited delirium and when um arjun is a, a medical uh now actually now he's a medical doctor i believe at that point when we interviewed him he was a medical student and uh, excited delirium again for those who wants to listen back to season one the full episode but basically excited delirium is like a psychological um um basically diagnosis that police officers use and again that sounds like an oxymoron like how can police officers who have no like psychological psychiatric training diagnose a psychiatric um you know uh, uh illness on someone but basically in in short it, it was based off of over exuberance of um you know being a threat um over uh over overly super strength all of these um exertions of aggravation that um the person was described to to ensue on the police thought as a retaliation or response and police had no choice but to um you know respond by equal force if you will right or brutality whatever term we would like to use i'm just curious as a trained um and of course you know uh, as a trained uh psychiatrist uh what are your um I guess, what is your impression on that, uh, of excited delirium, the diagnosis, um, and, of course, that connection between criminalization and criminality for um, individuals?
2: Yeah, so there's a lot of uh, concern in the medical and psychiatric community about the use of that uh, diagnosis, right? Because it's, um, to my understanding, it's not really a diagnosis at all. Like, we don't use it in medicine. I've never seen it used in the hospital. Um, I've never seen it used in clinic. Um, And... I know the American Psychiatric Association and others have expressed concern that this is a construct that's basically used to kind of justify use of force incidents. Right. Um, And I think it raises a really important point, which is the misuse of whether it's mental health or medical terminology or the medical community for You know the purposes of you know incarceration or use of force or whatever right and so this is something we deal with in our work all the time in you know jails and prisons let me give you an example let's say you have um somebody who is constantly banging on their cell window and they're tormenting their cellmates they're tormenting the staff that person is more likely to get referred to mental health staff because people are like, why is this person banging constantly on their window, right? And then the mental health staff are more likely to see the person. They are more likely to, at some point, someone will say, well, this person is being disruptive. Maybe they should be seen by a prescriber. So you can see all these ways in which people kind of get funneled into increased... I'm not saying you bang on a window, you automatically get a pill, right? However, if you just think from like a decision tree the likelihood that they're going to end up on a pill is increasing with each way in which they're getting referred. And the question there is, well, okay, at what point are prescribers then responding to this person's being disruptive? We need to calm this person down, right? And if that person is disruptive because let's say they have schizophrenia and they're hallucinating and they need help, okay, that's completely valid, right? But what if the person banging on the window is banging on the window because they feel completely unjustly treated in their environment because the conditions of confinement are horrifying if they're not allowed access to their lawyer, if they can't talk to their family, right? But you can still see the decision tree that's leading to them down that pathway towards you know, increased likelihood of being prescribed medication. So that's another example where we worry about, well, okay, how are our instruments or tools or medical interventions used in these right? Where are they being used in that purpose for the purpose of like sedating someone, right? To calm them down because that person is really, you know, annoying the cellmates and the staff around them, right? And so similarly, when we look at excited delirium, that's a potential use of a, you know, medical ease type term that most clinicians and health professionals, to my understanding, do not use or get training in. It's not kind of standard of care. Um, And then it's used in very specific ways in law enforcement contexts, right? Um, So I think that's something that even though in my experience, I still feel in general that the the medical community has often ignored mass incarceration. We don't talk about these environments often. We don't send trainees to them. We don't work in these places. So in my view, I think the medical community has to lean in, see these places, um, put ourselves inside of them, speak up about them. And this is an example, right? Where if we're not doing that, how are our treatments? How are our diagnoses? How is our language being used by these places, right? Um, And if we're not fully invested as, you know, medical professionals in thinking about the health of these places and the policies around them, then we might be missing the ways in which they're being used, right? Um, so, yes, that's that's a, a concerning example. And I know it's one that a lot of professional organizations have spoken up about as well in terms of their concern about uh, the use of excited delirium. The last thing I would just say is, um, you know, working in these environments for the last few years that not only the medical community, but academia, I I think, you know, particularly health professionals, but more broadly, this is really an important, exciting time when we're looking at mass incarceration in this country and the policies that have led to it. And COVID has shined a light on it. The last few years, we've had, you know, many policymakers and people speaking out about policies that have led to mass incarceration. And when you sit with people who are behind bars, who, as I mentioned before, in my experience are, um, in most cases, poor, Um, And there because they are, you know, have limited access to opportunities in life, whether it's housing, income, education. Um, I think this is a really important time for us to rethink these policies and to rethink what are the ways in which we can support public health better in the communities, in our communities across the country. Um, And I think the medical community, academia, we all need to be a part of that discussion um, because if we're not, then someone else is making those decisions, right? Um, And so for me, it's been really humbling working with a lot of, you know, the patients in these environments to see the experiences that they've gone through. Um, And so hopefully if we have more people. People in the medical community talking about um, not only as you all do the, the ethical issues of what happens in these places, uh, but also what might a future look like that is different than now. Because I think a lot of us can agree keeping so many millions of people behind bars in this country is traumatic, harms people's health. Um, so, what does a different future look like? And I just hope that the medical community is is part of that discussion and contributing to it. So, um, thank you again for having me um, with you all. Um, you know, it's really really been a pleasure chatting with you.
0: Thank you for listening to another great conversation on bioethics in the margins. This podcast is hosted by Amelia Barwise and Kirk Johnson. Our producer is Elizabeth Chung. Our editor is Nicole Strand. Our theme music was written and produced by Pablo Cuartas. And we are grateful for the assistance of Wendy Jiang and Benjamin Foster. Join us again next time.